Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Folks, hello. Welcome to episode 300 of The Freelancer Show. Yay. Yay. So I know there are a couple of other panelists in the chat. I see them chatting at us. It turns out that we can only support four video people at a time, which is a bummer. I didn't realize that. Never tried to do this crowdcast. So um, we can probably, what I'll be doing is sort of jockeying around. And I'll probably mostly not talk and mostly just try and run the administrative aspects of what's going on here. So I can drop off and bring in at least, uh, I see Jeremy and I know Eric uh, Dietrich is in the room, our newest panelist. Uh, cool. I see live attendees coming in. Uh, so before I switch myself off, attendees, please put questions in the in the ask a question panel. We've got two questions in there already. If you don't have a question, you can vote it up or down. And I don't know. Is there anything else to say? And welcome back, Chuck. <laughs> yeah, it's been a while. The father should should you do the official introduction? <laughs> I don't know. I think that might be weird. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> uh, all right, cool. Maybe Ruben, you can kind of drive and I'll do the camera stuff. Sure. That sound? Sure. That, right. that sounds fine. Well, first of all, I mean, I think we're all super excited to be up to show number 300. I just told my family before I came upstairs here, they're like, wait, 300. Now I haven't been around for the whole thing, but like, holy cow, we've been doing this for a while and it's really, uh, a lot of fun and it's really nice to see a lot of people uh coming here and uh it's fun to bump into people and say oh yes we listen to the show and um who knew who knew podcasts were actually listened to by anyone but uh it's great fun that's terrific and uh <laughs> maybe chuck knows i mean he gets the advertising money right uh <laughs> okay anyway we're, we're very very happy to have oh sorry sorry <laughs> we're very happy to, to have people here so um yeah as, as jonathan said we'll i mean you can chat in the chat room, but if you have questions, it's probably easiest to put it in the Q&A so that then I can somehow mark it off as answered. I'm not sure if I can or anyway, we'll, we'll take that. As, yep, as I'll, do that. I'll do with that. Yep. All right. Excellent. So first question is, uh, how do you get potential clients to talk to you to work out if there's a fit? So the, of course, underlying assumption in this question, which is a good one, is that not 
every client is worth working for. And I know when I started working, I was like, oh, someone called me. They want to give me money. I will work with them. It does not matter how much they will pay me or what I will, will do. It. And this is, of course, not the way to do it. <laughs> so yeah, I'll toss it to you, to you guys. Hey, hey, you guys want to want to answer this? Anyone else want to answer this here? Sure, I'll take a run at it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to <clears throat> like, I think everybody starting out did that. Basically ran to whoever, you know, was willing to talk to them with the potential of paying them money for a skill that they had. Uh, but again, those often don't pan out to be good clients, let's say. Um, so you want to be able to have some sort of vetting process in place. Um, and for me, what's always really worked is just to be able to have them follow some simple instructions that is kind of like a precursor for working with me. So I have an online form and most of my communications through email. And if they can't take the time to fill out an online form, then how is it going to work from my perspective to work with them in an ongoing manner, right? Um, if they're willing to, if they're wanting to pick up a phone every five minutes to talk to me, that's just, that's, ne I'm never going to get any work done, right? Um, so I try to vet in that sort of respect. On the other side of the coin is when I start talking to them through an initial, you know, 30 minute call, that's all they get for free. Um, then, I tell them, look, this is a call just to find out if not only I'm a good fit for your project, but your project's a good fit for me, right? So I automatically kind of gauge them and let them know that, hey, look, this is this is a call not just for your own sake, but this is a call for me too to make sure that I could fulfill and satisfy the needs of your project. So those are really the first two things that I start to do to try to figure out if... Uh, if things are a good fit. Um, I, I kind of have a different take on the answer for this. And the question that I, as I see it is how do you get potential clients to talk to you in the first place? Right? So, um, how do you get more people kind of in the top of the funnel? Right. And then you start weeding them out with the things that Ruben and Jason are talking about. And I have to say that, uh, you know, I, I was a freelancer for a long time. At this point I'm doing sponsorship sales and things like that. The sales process is pretty similar across all those. And you, there's just no substitute for old-fashioned legwork. I mean, you just got to get out there and talk to people. Um, now, some venues are going to be easier than others. So um, I don't know if you can see the gorgeous hotel room behind me. I'm actually in Seattle, Washington for Microsoft Build. Um, we're recording some podcasts here for JavaScript Jabber. And uh, one of the things that I do is I just go walk through the show floor and talk to the people who sponsored the conference because they're kind of in the same market as people who would sponsor a podcast. And you can do similar things for the for freelancing, where you know you go out to the business conferences, you go out to the events, you know the local events where business people are at, and talk to them there and get to know them a little bit, find out what their problems are, and uh, just pull out in the business world who are working out some kind of pro uh, product or process, um, a lot of times they may not pan out right away, but they pan out eventually. I mean, yesterday I got contacted by somebody that basically said, um, I need this website scraped. You know, do you know anyone who could write that up for me? And, uh, you know, and so I asked him a few leading questions about how much he was willing to pay and what he needed. But 
you know, it's, it, it, it's kind of that kind of thing, you know, be willing to make the phone calls, be willing to reach out via email, be willing to connect with people on LinkedIn, be willing to um, go to the events and meet people. And as you do that, you're going to meet a whole bunch of people and sure not all of them are going to be good fits for you. Not all of them are even going to need the work that you could do for them, but it's, it's that kind of thing that really is going to fill your hopper. And, and then you can start to weed out the ones that aren't going to work out for you, you know, as, as they work their way down the funnel. But um, yeah, I, I hear, hear people all the time saying, well, is there like a list of leads and things like that? And if you're extremely lucky, you might get connected with somebody who can pass work off to you. But besides that, I haven't seen anything that works better than just getting out there and meeting people. Awesome. Curtis, you want to tackle that one? What was the original question since I jumped in partway through? Just how to get leads or? Yeah, it was sort of like um, how to uh, check sort of fit. Like how do you check fit with a new customer and, mm -hmm. and kind of went in the direction of, you know, not everybody's going to be a good fit. And how do you find people who are right fit? That kind of thing. Yeah, and I've been running pretty much the same process for five or six years with just some little tweaks to questions I ask. And so anyone who ever reaches out to me, uh, and I have a few different channels that reach out, I'm listed uh, with a number of the software tools I use as one of their developers. And so their support team knows me and recommends me, or I'm on YouTube doing reviews and talking about membership sites, stuff like that. So but whoever contacts me from whatever path it is, uh, the first thing they get is an email, which has about... Mm, seven to nine questions, depending, asking what, why now on the project, what's valuable in the project, who are the decision makers, what's your timeline, what's your budget. Then if that's good uh, and I want to move forward, the next thing I see is we go to a phone call. I don't go, uh, it has to be a phone call. I don't just go over email unless we've worked together before. If we've worked together before, then uh, I'm quite happy to just continue because I already know what it's like to work with them. And then if the phone call is good, we move to a proposal stage uh, where we work together. And then if that goes well, then I still actually get a proposal and a contract. So this is the basic way that I vet my clients. And I have a set of criteria as well saying like they have to do certain things or they have to be certain types of clients, right? I want to be able to come off the phone and uh, laugh with them. We have laughed a couple times on the phone call. If we haven't, then I actually question whether they're a good client for me. So. Yeah, I've always liked that litmus test. I remember when I first heard you say that, you know, if, if you don't if you don't connect with them and, and specifically with like chuckling at the same sorts of jokes, like it's probably not a good sign for your fit level, your ability to communicate with them over time. Cool. Eric, you want to give it a give it a shot? Do you have a feeling for this question? Sure, I can do that. Speaking to both parts of it. So for me, I've been, I guess. I would say fortunate, but it involved a lot of hard work. So before I went off on my own, when I was working corporate jobs, I spent a lot of time and effort blogging and putting together video courses and stuff. So since leaving, I've had the good fortune that pretty much all of my leads have wound up coming via inbound channels of some form or another. Like I don't do a whole lot of outreach. Um, I've never really needed to. When that um, inbound, uh, those inbound leads come in, um, in terms of filtering them, I kind of just developed over the years a process during the conversation of asking questions that made me more and more uncomfortable over the course of time or uh, expanded my comfort zone over the course of time, I should say, that I would have been terrified to ask initially that are essentially disqualifying. Um, you know, I might explain to them up front, I just won't do 
insert common thing here that a lot of clients would, you know, maybe do a double take um, because I've learned uh, the hard way through engagements that there are certain things that I don't want to do. So better to get that out uh, right up front. So uh, that's basically my lead gen, pretty much all inbound. And then uh, the qualification process um, is that kind of Q and a back and forth that I might classify as a little aggressive. <laughs> yeah, it's nice to get to that point though, isn't it? You know, you can, you can really do your best work when you're with clients that you click with and aren't sort of ordering ordering you around. Yeah. Hard one, but uh, it, it's a nice place to be. Yeah. One of the, one of the things I tweet repeatedly is, you know, if, if you let people push you around, in the sales process, don't be surprised when they push you around when it comes time to work on the project. So like yeah, absolutely. Push back early. Jeremy, hello, hello. Hey, I'm good. Uh, glad to be here for the 300th episode. This is cool. Uh, Excellent. So yeah, to, to kind of touch both sides of the question, um, like Eric, uh, I and now at the point where most of my most of my leads are are inbound due to people seeing either a conference talk that I gave or a, a blog post that I wrote. Uh, I've actually had surprising number of leads come through uh, just answering questions on Stack Overflow. Uh, I was surprised that that turned out that way, but uh, there for a while I answered a lot of Ember questions, and I get I don't know I, several times a year people reach out and say, "Hey, I saw that you." have answered a lot of questions on Stack Overflow about Ember and we need some help. Uh, can you help us out? Um, mm -hmm. So that's really good. Just having some public knowledge that you've put out there that you can point at really helps a lot, both in people finding you so that you have inbound leads. And then even when I'm, you know, find a, a and doing some kind of outbound uh, outreach where I'm trying to convince somebody that I've spotted that, you know, they should be a, a client of mine. Uh, having stuff to point to really helps a lot, uh, just solidifies knowledge, uh, gives them confidence that, yes, I, I do know what I'm talking about. Um, and then on the other side of kind of vetting people, uh, my process is, is very similar to what people have already described, you know, asking a lot of questions. I really do try to, to start the conversation over email uh, and kind of one of my rules is if I ask the person four or five questions that, uh, to try to vet them and they only answer one or two of them, that's a pretty good sign that I'm not going to enjoy working with that person because it's just going to be a, a different style of communication. And I want to work with the types of people that can get an email with five questions in it and can manage to answer all of those questions. Uh, and, you know, that's, that's for me, personal process, per, personal preference. You know, I prefer to do things via email if I can, but then eventually it does get turned into a, a call. Uh, but I try to avoid that call if I can tell ahead of time that it's just not going to be a good fit. Yeah. Some people just communicate. I've definitely come across clients who are more prone to want to jump on a call. Let's just jump on a call. And that's fine. It's nothing, nothing wrong with that, except for I don't like jumping on calls. So, mm -hmm. so other, other than a sales call, I think that I'm a, I agree with you. I'm a big fan of like picking people who operate in their, uh, their, their, 
favorite communication channels for particular kinds of information transfer are similar to mine and they don't want to, you know, always just jump on the call or always do everything over email. It can be some mix, but it is nice to, if you're going to have a communication problem that early on, it's a bad sign for a long-term project because communication is really key for keeping things on the rails. Yeah. So and, and for me, my particular preference is, you know, I want to be able to work on the thing asynchronously. I, I don't want both my brain and the other person's brain to have to be engaged on the problem at the same time at all times for us to be able to communicate effectively. There needs to be able, we need to be able to do that asynchronously and kind of detached because we might not be in the same time zone or, you know, any number of reasons why asynchronous communication is preferable to me. Well, and you can frame that conversation with a lot of people in a way that explains how they're going to get the benefit. So it's not just, well, the, you know, that kind of communication doesn't work for me. You know, you can explain, Hey, look, this is how I get into the flow. And when I'm in the flow, I'm three times more effective than when I'm not. So I'm doing this so that you can get the most value from me. And then if they're still not willing to, you know, to work through it that way, you know, then you start having the conversation. I don't feel good about the level of service I'm providing given our current situation. So we're either going to have to disengage or, you know, however you want to bring that. Mm. Yep. Jason's saying that. Yeah. Sorry. Setting boundaries. Jason's saying in chat, setting boundaries was the best thing I ever did for my business. Cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just going to add like, I mean, basically what do I want to say? I mean, because just about everything I do is training and I treat that as like a productized consulting thing. So I really don't have to vet my clients that much. Um, most of it is like inbound leads. So people hear about me. There's a lot of word of mouth going on. They call me up. Um, I guess in theory, they see my website, but I don't know. Uh, I, I'm not sure how many people really look at my website. But basically, when they call me up, the question of fit is, um, you know, what do I teach? What do they want? What are the people doing? Um, and, and the biggest thing having to do with fit is schedule and price. So if they're like, if they're willing to deal with my schedule, my scheduling issues, and if they're willing to pay my my price, I'm generally happy to deal with them the first time around. But then I know there's some companies that are just sort of more annoying to deal with than others. And then I'm not, I'm not going to say no to them, but I'll give them second, third, fourth priority on dates. Like after others have chosen, then I'll come back to them. Um, so I can prioritize it that way. But the fact that I'm sort of giving them a, 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 a product, the fact that I'm giving them like a very standard thing means that there's not much negotiation in terms of what they're like, what I'm like. I mean, like my rules or, or you don't, then I'll come and I'll provide the same service that I do to everyone else. Cool. All right. I feel like uh, there's some interesting uh, info from some of the panelists in the chat. Curtis, Eric, Jason are chiming in there. Let's. I feel like we've we've probably gone around the horn uh, on this one. How about Ruben? While you're still here, <clears throat> I wonder. It's sort of move on to the next the next question. I'm going to kind of paraphrase it, but I'm curious, and I'll go around to all the panelists to say, you know, for folks, the question is. Uh, when you were value-based newbies, how did you handle objections to hourly pricing and so on and so forth? The question, I kind of want to generalize the question a little bit and say, you know, for folks who have successfully disconnected time from money, whether it was value-based or productized services or training or info products or whatever, uh, or sponsorships, um, how, what was that experience like for you? Why did you do it? Um, what were the challenges? Just sort of talk about the things that you do where you're not getting paid for your time. 
maybe Ruben, you could kick us off since you're since you're on. Look, I mean, I think in many ways, my clients would be surprised to hear I'm not charging for my time because from their perspective, and I mean, my pricing is, you know, it's a four day course. It's, you know, time, you know, you know four days times this price per day, like end of story. Um, but I'm taking into account like what they're willing to pay. I'm willing to take into account the fact that typically training budgets assume you've got a whole training company with marketing people and salespeople and offices and so forth. So, like, if they really thought about it, they would come to me and say, wait a second, why should we pay you the same thing? Firstly, the same things we're paying a large training company, but they don't. So I guess at the end of the day, it, it really is a value-based proposition. They, they don't care if it's a one-person operation or a thousand-person operation because they're getting certain value from their, uh, from their, you know, for their people. Um, I mean, here I'd say this is like a classic case of what Jonathan talks about all the time. I was able to make the disconnect because I stopped doing development work. Right, the most like like development work. Every time I tried on a number of occasions to do development work on a value based uh, um, basis, and no one would take me seriously. They'd be like, "Okay, but how much is it per hour? And how much do you really charge?" And like maybe I just didn't know how to respond to that. But I think in the end, I didn't want to respond to that. Um, and or I think a lot of Israeli clients are just not used to dealing with that. So moving into Training meant I was out of that entirely. Didn't need to even consider it because they just want to know how much the darn thing cost. Yeah, you do a company that I need to do training, and they know that I have like cost per day plus like an extra per person if it goes over a certain limit, and they're totally okay with that, right? Like so, from their perspective, we're getting value per person. We're happy, and it reduces the friction a lot when you get to that point. That's for sure. Awesome. I'm gonna jump over to. I'd like to jump over to Chuck next, um, but before <laughs> before you jump off. Uh, Ruben, what you mentioned, one thing that I just want to call out for the audience, which is that, you know, maybe Israeli clients are just not used to paying for development services by the hour. Clients everywhere are used to paying for development services by the hour. I mean, it's, it's definitely true that they're all, all with I, literally no exceptions. I can think of no exceptions when someone contacted me and was like, uh, hey, can you give me a, a fixed price for a giant software project? Like they think they're going to get an hourly rate every time. So Changing that conversation instantly, like in the first communication, is where some of the the art of because it's not a science; it's a, it's an art, definitely, to having a value price conversation. Uh, it it starts right there because clients are just not used to thinking about it that way. And the thing that you want to connect in their minds is that they are used to buying everything else that way, so they're used to paying for food and cars and houses and everything else, even big purchases, knowing upfront how much the money is going to leave their wallet. So if you can, if you can connect that to them very quickly in the first kind of conversation and you'll immediately find out uh, whether or not it's going to be acceptable because some clients are required by the procurement process to get an hourly rate. And if it's someone in a situation like that, maybe they're not a good fit to our earlier question. For me, they certainly wouldn't be a good fit. So there's always that, the, what I'm getting at is there's always that sort of transformation you have to make in their mind and it's important to get it done immediately just to not waste your time in theirs cool so yeah i'm gonna switch over to chuck i'm curious about i'm curious about especially this kind of question because i think you have the most novel business model of any of us <laughs> yeah well Maybe I'm wrong. Um, no i don't know so i mean most of the time when i'm doing sales these days it's sponsorship sales so really what it comes down to is how many episodes do you want to sponsor and things like that and mm-hmm. it's a fixed price per whichever spot they want so yeah i mean when you when you're selling advertising or things like that, it's usually per unit. Um, but I still have the value conversation with people. I think 
I think a lot of times people think, oh, well, you know, if I'm doing the, the, uh, hourly rate, you know, I, I just don't have the value conversation with them. I just, you know, I just tell them how much it's going to be. And if they're okay paying for, you know, 30 X hours a week at that rate, you know, then what, but I mean, everybody's paying for something because they think they're going to get something else out of it. And so, you know, I still have the value conversation and I've told sponsors not to sponsor shows because I didn't think that they were going to get whatever it was they wanted from it. And we need because so many signups. Well, we need so many signups to justify the ad spend. And then, yeah, it wasn't a good fit. I'm like, I don't think I can sell this, right? I don't think I can get on my show and talk about it in a way that people are going to come back and buy your stuff. You know, now some of these companies, they just want the word to get out, you know, so Microsoft sponsored iPreaks, um, you know, and it was because they wanted to get mobile ad center out, you know, and so if that's the value they want, then fine. But otherwise, it's just, yeah, uh, you know, I'll just tell them I'm like, and then I've told people this before. It's like, uh, you know, the second that you don't feel like you're getting a good value, then all of a sudden, I have to go back through everything I've done and justify all the work that I've done. And that that's no fun. Right. And if you know, when I was freelancing, I mean, you know, when I switched to value-based, it was the same thing. It was like, look, I know how these conversations go. It either winds up where I'm justifying the work that I did, or you're starting to talk to me about which corners we can cut. And I'm like, I just don't do that, right? You're asking for a particular amount of value. And so if, if it's worth it to you, and it's the same conversation I have about podcast sponsorships, right? You're looking for this amount of value. So if it's worth it to you to pay for this, and, you know, and get the kind of value that you're talking about in return, then great, you know, and I offer some guarantees, right? So it's like, okay, well, you didn't get as much traffic as we thought you would. So, you know, I'll extend their sponsorship on my dime for a week or two, or mm -hmm. I'll do a webinar or I'll put up a YouTube video or something like that. And, you know, and just kind of help drive that along a little bit more. But it, it's down then to that value proposition instead of down to oh, well, you paid me for so many sponsorships. Sorry. And, you know, eventually sometimes you get there, right? For whatever reason, it just didn't convert. And no matter what I did, I couldn't get that many people to go to their website. But, you know, if, if you're talking to them about value and then you're committed to getting them that value, if there's any way you can humanly do it, then then it becomes a completely different conversation. And, uh, yeah, I, the the transition for that is kind of tricky sometimes. Because, you know, they just they just kind of want it to all work automatically. But the reality is, is that, you know, you don't really have any guarantees with software. You don't have, really have any guarantees with advertising, of guarantees with a lot of these things. And so, you know, it's like, look, you know, here's what we're going to do. Here's what we think is going to happen. And, you know, and so you put the money down for it and we'll make it, you know, we'll make our best run of it. But yeah, I guess the real thing that I'm kind of aiming at is that even if you are charging for your time, to have that value conversation. So why not just push it over to, well, you know, it sounds like you're willing to pay X for, you know, this result. So why don't you just pay X for this result? Right. Yeah. I mean, the thing about the thing about hourly is it allows everybody to get started spending money and doing work before <laughs> based on tons of assumptions. There's just so many assumptions mm -hmm. like that the the contractor under under really actually understands the overall goal of the project, which can yeah. greatly affect how they do their work and what choices they make while they're doing it. So if you're just being paid to, you know, implement these features, go, um, you know, there's, that, there's a place for that, but it's mm -hmm. not a super high value place. You're, you're basically, 
um, you know, being told what to do by someone who may or may not be an expert at your, uh, at your, in your area of expertise. So it's kind of like the inmate running in the asylum. Or can well, be. the other thing is, is I've also explained to him, I'm like, look, I'm not going to pad my hours, but by doing it this way, it sets the incentives where then I go to the people who are working for me. And instead of passing their hours on to you, because I can't control what they do. And I think they're honest, but I can't mm. always know that, you know, if I'm subcontracting it or anything else, I go to them and I negotiate a straight rate. Right. So then everybody's getting the value and the incentives are we, we want to get this done right and quickly, you know, so that we can make the most of this opportunity. Awesome. Jason, you want to chime in on this one? Sure. Um, I think what you said earlier about it's more of an art than a science, especially in the beginning, because, <clears throat> you know, and, and I don't consider myself a salesperson in any stretch of the imagination, but you definitely have to see where that conversation is going. And if they are starting to go along the lines of hourly versus value, um, see what's important to them. Right. Like, so, you know, if they're a business owner, chances are they don't want to track your time. Right. And <laughs> they don't want to track the number of hours that you're working for them and start doing some reconciliation at the end of the week or whenever that period that you agree on is. So, you know, I bring that to light, you know, or I used to anyway. Right. Uh, sorry about this. My cat's being annoying. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, um so, I mean, but now it's more, it's more along the lines of, you know, like what Chuck was saying is that you find out what the value of your solution is to that client, right? So whether that's, you know, number of, you know, walk, if it's a brick and mortar store or whatever, like number of walk-ins through the door, what that, what an average customer costs or what a value of that average customer is, all of those factors play into it and, if my price is a no-brainer for you to get X results, then why are we even having this conversation of hourly versus whatever you know value-based price that I'm I'm telling you, right? Yeah, you might as well be talking about keystrokes, right? Makes no sense. When you start a new project, typically you need things like a domain name, hosting, things like that. When I choose hosting, I pick mine for the options it gives. I like to know what I'm getting and set things up just how I like them. This is why for your projects, you should check out Linode. Linode servers feature native SSD storage, a 40 gigabyte network, and Intel E5 processors. That's all the power you need to run VMs under full control or Docker containers, who doesn't love that, encrypted disks, and VPNs. Plus, they have 10 data centers across the world and add-ons like backups, node balancer, and Longview to help you control your server costs. They also offer block storage for your static files, and you can get started with a $20 credit if you use the code FREELANCERSHOW2018. That credit is good for four months on their one gigabyte server. That's a lot of time to try them out and see if they're the right fit for you. That code again is FREELANCERSHOW2018. Also, if you're interested in working for Linode, they're hiring. Head to linode.com slash careers to see their available positions. Cool. All right, Eric, want to jump um, in? Sure. So... I'd like to touch on something I heard Reuven mention, which is that for me, it really started to become an easy matter when I found that I wasn't really doing app dev anymore. <clears throat> when I did app dev, that's when everybody always wanted to talk about hourly. Um, as my work became more and more consultative and strategic, 
um, if you're talking about things like retainer consulting arrangements or, or building a roadmap or strategy consulting, clients really don't tend to blink at not getting an hourly rate for that. I find that they kind of prefer where you say, I'm going to you know, charge you 10K for this and I'll do the following things. They like that. Um, and even when it comes to like app dev, sometimes in some of the strategy consulting I'll do, I'll help agency or um, companies evaluate agencies and RFPs and such. Um, they still like that fixed bid. So there's kind of, uh, I think, some interim practice you can have between value pricing and um, time for money, which is that you can figure out a, a good fixed price to charge that's going to make sense and that's going to be agreeable to them. And I think you might be surprised to find how many clients just like having a price. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, for me, it actually wasn't a real hard transition. Um to get away from the time for money thing. It just kind of dovetailed with the nature of the work that I was doing. Yeah. It is so interesting. Like we talked about before people, people seem to expect it's just this weird expectation that's grown up that particular things are paid for by the hour. And, you know, maybe it came out of the legal profession, but I think it also comes from you sort of like punching the clock, like working in a warehouse or at a McDonald's or something. I mean, there's a certain, there's a certain, um, uh, viewpoint that the employer has for the the person that they're hiring in this way and changing that you know to get back to fit earlier to change that conversation needs to happen like right out of the gate when somebody uh reaches out to you yeah so, jeremy do you have uh thoughts on this yeah one thing that i've done that isn't it's not quite as hard a disconnect uh of the time and money thing as just, you know, a, a value-based project fee. Mm-hmm. But uh, since I've started charging by the week instead of by the hour, uh, to me, that feels a lot less like I'm trading time for money in some ways. Uh, I found that that tends to focus. It, it helps to focus clients on what are the things that we want to get done this week instead of, how long are you going to spend doing things for me this week? Mm, and yep. once, once that refocusing has happened, they really get to where, yeah, they don't care what kind of time I'm spending. They just care that I'm getting done the things that we had agreed would get done this week. Um, and, you know, some weeks that that works out in my favor greatly that, Oh, turns out this thing didn't take as long as we thought it would. And, you know, I'm still getting paid for the week and I've done all the things and everybody's happy. Uh, occasionally it works out in the other direction and isn't as good for me. And I end up having to spend a little more time than I thought, uh, getting stuff done, but on balance, I feel like it's worked in my favor and that I, I am not as close to trading time for money as I was when I was charging people hourly. Hmm. And you've also got some SaaSes going, you know, the, the Shopify yeah. app stuff. And yeah. so how, how does that kind of play into, how do you uh, view those sorts of activities in your business? Like where do they fit into your business compared to doing like weekly dev? Uh, at the moment, they, they don't, uh, you know, bring in as much revenue as the weekly dev stuff does. Uh, and I kind of, 
am viewing all of them as a series of small bets that can pay off at you know various multipliers, mm-hmm. uh, some more than others. And uh, with you know the Shopify apps, especially, uh, many of those are so small and easy to get going that um, it, it doesn't feel like I, I don't feel as personally invested in those as I do, say, in Remark which was, you know, a, a much larger SaaS and took a, a lot longer to get going and to get bootstrapped. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, some of those, some of those Shopify apps, I think, you know, if you look at it from a multiplier perspective have paid off much better than Remark has. Um, and, you know, it kind of in unexpectedly, I guess. Um, uh, and, did that answer your question? Yeah, it does. I feel like yeah, I kind of just rambled there. No, no, no. But it, <laughs> but it's interesting because you got sort of, you got sort of. For, for, I think there are probably a lot of developers listening, and that is, you you kind of run the gamut across. Like, okay, I I do development, but it's on a weekly basis, which is interesting because it changes the conversation. I've got a sort of ambitious SaaS that took a lot of work and pays off in a particular way, and then I've got these sort of. I don't know what you would call them. They're, like I picture them like candy. You know, they're like the Shopify apps are like candy, and kind of maybe you know I'm just I'm imagining if it were me, they would probably be a lot more fun to develop, less pressure. You can kind of do them quickly, and oh, what do you know? They actually they like they're a different multiplier. Everything is a different multiplier, and I also I liked your um, calling it like uh, placing bets and seeing you know kind of like doing shipping little experiments. I mean, they're more than experiments, they're live products, but, mm-hmm. but trying these different things using the same expertise that you have that you bring to bear for your clients, for yourself and for partners. So I think that's perfect. Yeah, it's, it definitely is, you know, not putting all my eggs in one basket. It's having lots of baskets and yep. allowing some of those to fall if they do. Yep. Cool. There's a there's another question in here about niching and specialization. And Eric mentioned something in the chat about positioning. So if uh, if I could put you on the spot, Eric, and bring you back to talk a little bit about positioning and how that's affected your ability to uh, stop trading time for money uh, or how it's affected your business in general, that would be cool. Um, sure. So I um, just a, a little bit of background. Um, I went from uh, working full time um, as a salaried employee to doing kind of what I would call generalized coaching um, and consulting with organizations, uh, like helping with things like test driven development for organizations that were doing agile transformations, things of that nature. As part of that, I gradually started in both subcontracted arrangements and on my own, finding myself doing these code base uh, assessments. Um, with like more and more sophisticated static analysis tooling that I was leveraging. And so what this started to translate into uh, that I almost backed into was dealing with organizational leadership in enterprises, kind of director level and on uh, uh, on up, helping them make strategic data-based decisions about their code base. Um, that positioning, um, it, it made it a lot easier to have conversations and it made it a lot easier to price because there wasn't a lot of competition that was doing things like that. Um, So it just became, you know, they didn't have anything to benchmark it. There was no race to the bottom going on. So uh, it became a pure matter of, you know, is it worth this spend to you or not uh, to have some good input for this decision you're about to make as to whether to retire your application or not. Mm. 
Cool. Okay. So to so leaping off from that into and to bring it a little bit um more to this person's specific question, because I kind of started you in a more general place. You you mentioned that you backed into that almost by accident. How how you know it's it can take time for specialization and positioning to take hold in the minds of your buyers. What did you do in the meantime? Like how were you supporting yourself in the meantime while that started to get traction? Um Mostly I was, uh, let's see, um, mostly I was doing at that time, uh, the most common thing I would be doing was um, subcontracted uh, hourly based coaching consulting. So embedding with a team for a few months, helping them with test driven development or um, engineering practices, things of that nature. And while I was doing that, while I was making these connections and on site, um, talking to people and doing readouts to leadership, that's where these conversations would start. So I was kind of opportunistically taking advantage of the position I was in to figure out other things that I could offer to these folks. Mm, Excellent. So Ruben, could you kind of kind of pick that up, pick up the football at that point? You know, how did you make a transition from from doing primarily development work into being really like really take the plunge with training? So it was and, gradual. You know, and, it was yeah, really gradual. Like I mean, I started. You know, when I started. Doing, when I started my consulting company twenty years ago. Um, it was you know once every few months doing some training and mostly development work and project work. And it was really about, I guess, 10 years ago when we came back from the U.S. that I started doing more and more training that I saw it was more and more in demand. And so it just sort of started eating up more of my time. And at first I was, I didn't want this to happen. I said, oh, wow, it's really eating into my development work. And I realized doing more, I'm able to charge more for it and I'm able to schedule it further in advance. And that's when the penny sort of dropped. I realized, oh, <laughs> this, this is better. And, and I think part of it was also that I was sort of embarrassed, right? A lot of developers are like, well, if I'm not developing code every single day, then obviously I'm not a real developer. But it turns out that you can have a successful business and still use your technical knowledge and feel good about yourself and get paid well. Um, it's, it's okay. <laughs> like you, you don't need to be slaving away code for a project every single day to be considered a real you know, technical expert. Um, and so um, I think it just sort of happened. Um, I, there was a point at which I said, oh, well, if I'm, I should really start specializing. And if I'm already doing this thing, and if I'm enjoying it and it's available, then I should just like push more on it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it definitely, if, it, if I hadn't had, if I were just sort of starting off, I think it'd be very hard to take the plunge just training. The, the day-to-day development, it's nice that it's available and it's nice that it's in demand because it does let you ease into things a bit more. Yep, absolutely. I, I find I think the identity thing was the toughest thing for me. Uh, just being, you know, like uh, for the longest time, I was yeah. Used to people, what do you do? Oh, I'm a I'm a web developer. I'm a software developer. You know, it, it evolved over the years, but it never went too. It was never a huge. Uh, it was always a small pivot. It wasn't like a giant giant break. Now that I'm doing like strictly business coaching, man, that was like. That I had to like look myself in the mirror and be practice almost be like okay, not going to say software developer anymore. And honestly, <laughs> that that was that was surprisingly. I mean, it wasn't hard, but it was. It took a lot. I mean, I thought about it. You know, it was it was a thing. You know, it was. Um, it felt like a big thing to me. I guess is what I'm trying to say. You know, like nobody. You know, none of my clients know or 
if they do know, they don't care. It's like I've got existing uh, sort of call them legacy uh, sort of technical clients that I'm still working with and that's fine. But when I meet somebody at a barbecue, it's like I'm a business coach now. And it just, it feels weird even to say it now, but um, you know, it's a gradual change. So I actually did push back. Um, The training company I was working with for a few years, they actually asked me certainly once, I think even several times, well, you do development when you're not training, right? I said, yes, why? They said, oh, it's very important to our clients that we have field like using this technology who are also teaching it. Um, and now every so often someone will ask me that sort of question, but mm-hmm. I discovered it was cared and maybe because they were marketing me as opposed to me marketing myself that it was important. But to mm-hmm. the actual end clients, I don't think anyone's actually ever asked me like the last few years. Right. Which yeah. makes me feel better about myself, right? <laughs> Curtis, do you have uh, something to add to the conversation about, you know, niching down, specializing yourself and how to keep the lights on as people are making a transition and waiting for a specialization to take hold? Yeah, maybe don't do exactly what I do, which is burn the bridges, mind you. Definitely (laughs) more into that. Uh, So I've been transitioning to do a lot more coaching over the last year uh, and less development than I am. As I said, I am the burn the bridges behind you. So I just dove into a bunch of it and started saying no to development. And we have certainly felt that in the pocketbook. Don't do that. Make it more gradual. Um, Because there's going to be, like, even as I've done that, there's been some really, really good months where I'm like, oh, totally, it's taken hold. And, you know, a couple of clients don't renew. And then it's, you know, back to where it was before. So, Mm -hmm. or, you know, not, or tight or something. So, or finding, you know, alternate. I looked at doing some alternate or adjacent things as well. So I've been doing um, productivity style screencasts and lessons for different organizations as well. And that's right up the same alley as coaching, but it's not as for myself. So finding some other adjacent work that is less development and then being very picky about the development work I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can. I, I sometimes am a burn the boats type of person as well. I can be to like really get myself to, not, not in a long time, not since I've had kids. I haven't done something like that, but I've done it in the past where I'm like, okay, full stop. And it's rough. It's rocky. And if that's, if that suits your personality and that's what you need to kind of kickstart, not you, but the, the dear listener, if, if that's what you need to kickstart yourself, then, then, you know, it's something to consider, but it, it will almost certainly be rocky. You know, oh, yeah, it's, absolutely. it's going to be, it's going to be rough. And I do have kids. It's been, you know, even dealing yeah. with my wife. We've, my wife and I have talked about it a few times. She is, absolutely behind running my own business and what I would do. So also being also mentioned like your perception of what you are and changing that. Right. So I've looked at taking a job and specifically doing coaching for another organization as well in the product. I wrestled with that for a while to anyone, even coaching students, because it's, you know, I'm not freelance doing something different, but I'm still firmly helping myself get a, you know, more situated in the field and expand my network in the field, the intent that I would be doing it for myself eventually again. So, Awesome. See, I see Jason talking about this in the chat and pulling him on. Yeah, Jason, so you're, you're making a comment about the brick wall between you and some income and, and wondering if you have any experiences you could share with people about about keeping the lights on while you're waiting for a sort of call it a new business or a new position or a new specialty to take off. Yeah. I mean, for me, when I stopped being a generalist and specialized in my dev work, 
it was very gradual. Like, you know, Ruben said, like, it was just, you know, I had old clients, but any new clients that came on were part of that specialty. Um, and then as, you know, now I'm branching out in other things like coaching and other kind of, you know, ventures, um, I'm turning down dev work that I would have done in the past. And I've had conversations with my friends that knew that I took dev work and they're like, Hey, nothing like putting a brick wall between you and income. <laughs> and I'm just like, yeah, but there's only so much time in a day. And if I want to be able to do the other thing that that needs to be, you know, focused upon during certain times that, you know, Hey, there's a reason why I'm moving in that direction. Right. So it's not just about the income sometimes and to be able to sacrifice something now for something that I'm trying to accomplish. Um, you know, sometimes it's just it's a matter of maybe, you know, tightening up the wallet a little bit more or something like that. Right. Um, but it's it's tough. You know, it's to keep the lights on. I mean, I've done it myself where as a developer, you have that skill set. You can always say, hey, look, I can always just go out and get another gig for a couple of weeks or something like that. Right. Like, mm -hmm. and I've done that myself and found myself behind the eight ball and, and saying, oh, why did I do that in the first place? But yes, I did need that extra cash. But it, you know, it's that cycle sometimes, but you have to kind of kick yourself sometimes too and saying like, I'm not going to do that. I do need to focus on this specialization or new venture, or new service, or whatever it is that you're trying to do, because that does need my focus now if it's going to be successful. Yeah. So that's, so it's two sides of the coin. Like I totally get where people are coming from struggling with this because it's like, well, you can't do a good job, say value price. Let's say you're going to stay in dev, but you're just trying to change the way you're positioning yourself, the way you're going to price your work. It is really hard to have good value conversations with people about this money that they're like, Hey, can I give you some money? And you're like, whoa, 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 let's see if we're a good fit. Like being willing to walk away from it takes some serious, I mean, I know, I know exactly one person and it's not me who I've seen um, just walk away from that money even when they were in a really bad cash crunch and they were just just idealistically no I am not gonna that's not the kind of work I take on and it, that's I've only seen it once you know so I think everybody knows where this you know what's like it's like mm, car payments come and due and bank accounts look on a little light or we've got a big thing coming up going to Disney or whatever got some big a big expense coming and it's super tempting to kind of slide back. And I've noticed, um, I did a, a webinar called the Altitude of Engagement. And it's like, you have a tendency when you're trying to reach these higher altitudes of engagement. So most people here probably do, you know, software development people especially probably do like maintenance and implementation level work. But if you're trying to push yourself up to the strategy level where people are willing to give you high value fixed price um, you know, paychecks and fees just to do this sort of cons consultative or advisory work, you're already, you know, you're like already talking to the right people and they're mentioning that they've got this implementation work and you're just sort of like salivating, like, oh, I could really use that money. And they're telling me that they have this work. It's like, you really don't want to slide back down the, that sort of chain, certainly not with a new client. Like once you do a strategy engagement, maybe you have people that work for you or, or you do some sort of follow-on engagement with implementation. But, you know, like Jason's saying, if you don't give that the, the attention that it needs, at some point, you're, it's, there's going to be a hard decision that, that if you don't say no to this sort of lower tier work and say, you know, and, and stand, stick to your guns, then it's, 
it's going to take you longer to grow to that place. Yeah, definitely. I'm curious, Chuck, do you have, do you have sort of a transition that you went through when you sort of took the plunge with dev chat TV, like in a big way, the plunge, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I can uh, briefly share that experience. Um, essentially I had, I had picked up a couple of uh, contracts. I actually had like three or four contracts at the time. And I had also expanded the podcast network to the point where um, running everything for the podcast and doing the contracts was impossible. I couldn't do them both. And so um, I thought about it. I prayed about it. I talked to my wife a lot about it. Um, (laughs) Of course, my wife is one of those people that, well, whatever you do, you'll be fine. So do whatever you want. (laughs) And, uh, so anyway, um, what it really came down to for me was that, you know, cause I mean, overall I felt okay about it. I was a little bit concerned about making enough to support, you know, the family and stuff on podcasting. I knew I could do it on, you know, software development, freelancing. Um, but the podcasting was what I was really enjoying. And I knew that I would still have some time that I could spend writing code. And so I was, I didn't have to just give it up. <clears throat> and so I just went for it. And when I went for it, I decided that if I was going to go for it, I had to be all in. And so I actually refunded all three of those contracts because they had all paid up front. Wow. And, um, and just went for it on, on the, on the podcasts and it worked out, but Um, I had some indication, I mean, I wouldn't have done it if, if the podcasts weren't bringing in any income whatsoever, but they were bringing in enough to pay a little more than half of my bills. And so I figured that if I, you know, if I transitioned more of the time I was spending dealing with clients into lining up sponsors and taking care of them, that it would work out. And it did. And I think, I mean, Ruben kind of talked about gradually working their way in. Um, for me, it really kind of came to a decision point where I had to decide I, I couldn't ease in. Um, mm. and so I just had to make a decision. The, the thing, the other thing though, that I think helps a lot of people when they get to this point, I've coached a few people through it is that it's not permanent, right? If, mm. if podcasting hadn't worked out within a few months, I could have gone back. I could have gone back. I could have gone to some of my old clients and found some new ones and I would have been okay. Mm-hmm. I didn't ever set like a break point, you know, well, if, if, you know, if we miss a mortgage payment and I didn't do any of that, but, and then I hadn't really even thought about, well, if this doesn't work out, I can go back to freelancing. I probably would have been less stressed <laughs> if I had. Um, but I just went all in. And I think a lot of times people get this idea that there's this thing that they're supposed to do, or this is how the world is supposed to work. Or if I make the wrong decision, then everything is going to be broken. And it's just not the case. And so, um, yeah, so you just kind of figure it out as you go. Um, I, I don't know that I still have the podcasting game down 100%. And it's been a couple of years now. But yeah, it's, it's, it's that kind of stretch, right? Mm-hmm. And somebody asked in the chat too, well, I'm kind of a new programmer. To, you know, how far do I have to get before I get into freelancing? And the answer is, is that the best training you can get for freelancing is freelancing. And, you know, same thing with the podcast production. The best, the best way for me to learn that was to just go into it full time. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, 
I, I encourage, you know, anybody who's kind of new, I mean, take the leap, especially if you don't have a lot of risk, right? You know, if, if you've got a few, um, some money in the bank or, you know, you, you have a spouse with a good job or, you know, you have some kind of safety net that you can fall back on or something like that, go for it because you're going to learn way more trying to make it work than you are by theorizing about it while you get that safety net in place or whatever. Yeah, um, I totally agree. And yeah, so I mean, that that was the transition there. And yeah, so one month I was a software consultant and the next month I was a podcaster full time. Mm. And you I kind of say... had... Go ahead. You did say something that mapped my experience very closely when I was transitioning uh, from software consulting to uh, to coaching, which was that I was doing two things at once for about 18 months mm-hmm. and I built up the the side hustle, if you want to call it that, I built it up to where it was about half of my income. And it was getting to the point where I knew I couldn't, that each was suffering from the other. Like mm-hmm. I, I was maxed out. Yep. And, and then there was a forcing factor. Like some, there was, so it felt like an overnight switch because one day something happened and I was <sighs> like, oh, okay, this is the, this is the sign like I need yeah. to make a decision and I know what the right decision is, but it's still a little bit scary. Yeah. Uh, but you know, you do it. And like you said, um, so it's, to me, it's a little bit different than waking up one morning and being like, you know what, I'm going to, I've been a software developer for 10 years, but I'm going to be a business coach starting today, and, <laughs> yeah. you know, and change your website and fire your clients and all that. I mean, if you've got no, I had a lot of feedback from the market that it was relatively, yeah. you know, it was a, it was a safe, safe ish. Um, uh, risk to take. Yeah, the the tricky thing for me were a couple of things. By the way, the forcing function for me was when I realized that I was not going to deliver on one of my contracts. Yeah. Then I just said, okay, I, if I can't keep my word, I've got to, you know, I've got to, I've got to fix it one way or the other. And so I've either got to let them find somebody now, or I've got to figure out how much podcasting I can do and still keep my word. And so I just gave them their money back, and they were okay with it. I think one of the other things is is that I know a lot of people who are out there doing certain kinds of business coaching. I I can count on one hand the number of people I know who make a full-time living doing podcasting. And that was the other thing that was scary was that it was, you know, I only know a couple people who do this at all. And most of them didn't do it well. They just had people who liked them and sent them money. <laughs> so it was, I mean, it was that too, right? It was, okay, well, there's no blueprint for this, right? I mean, you can go pick up a book on coaching. There's no blueprint for here's how you run a podcast network and let your kids eat at the same time. Right. And so, you know, it it did take a certain amount of faith, but at the same time, you know, sometimes you've just got to do it. You know, um, that's the other thing really with like the, the freelancing and everything else with these new folks is that there are people out there who are doing it and you get to know them, you can get some help. You know, and I, I do talk to the other folks who are doing podcasting or something like it full time. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, there are people doing YouTube full time and things like that, too. But mm-hmm. it's it's weird. It's weird making the transition, too, especially since I had put in 10 years of work trying to become, you know, a good software developer. And then all of a sudden it's, oh, I want to go make podcasts. Right. And I still get to yeah. talk about programming, but it's not the same thing. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. So. It, but but at the same time, I just, I don't know. I I didn't realize how miserable I was in a full-time job until I left. 
Mm-hmm. I didn't realize how hard it was to keep doing some of the things I had to do to keep the freelance business open until I quit. And there are still things that are hard about being a, a podcast network CEO or whatever you want to call me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I would take the challenges I have now over the challenges I had anywhere else. And I, I think that's a real decision that people have to make too. Um, if you think that you're going to go switch over to something else and there's going to be ponies and rainbows, you, you're just trading one set of problems for the other and you get a little bit of novelty at the beginning. Oh man, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, that that novelty is the thing that can suck people into making a rash yeah. decision, which is, I'm, I'm too old to be making rash decisions like that. But I did notice <laughs> even in the... Even in the the small positioning shifts I've made over the years, going from development to strategy, for example, mm-hmm. it was you know it was not obvious how I was going to accomplish it, but it was obvious to me that I should do it because I was getting really bored with the old thing. I was really bored, like to the point where I couldn't. I remember saying to myself, uh, "I was sort of a, a you know not a forcing factor so much, but it was a noticeable moment in my life when I was like, I'd been." doing PHP development for a long time. This is going way back and I, I mm-hmm. loved it. Like I would do it 24 seven if I didn't have to sleep. I loved writing PHP and because I felt like a superhuman. And then I remember it, one day it just occurred to me, I was like, if I write another login system, I'm going to blow my brains out. Like, cause back then it was like pre rails and you had to do all of this stuff mm-hmm. from scratch every single time. And it was just like, I am like all of a sudden I realized, wow, I'm super sick of this. It was weird. Like I had gotten slowly gotten sick of it over time and I just totally forgot, didn't notice it. And then it was like, wow, I need to do something about this. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I I think sometimes people think that they're going to just stumble into the right thing and that's going to be their thing for the rest of their life. And I I think we all go through seasons of life. So when I was full-time job software developer, I loved a lot of the stuff I was doing and learning. Um, and then, you know, I just wound up in a couple of positions where I wasn't happy and I went freelance. Mm. And I loved freelancing for a long time. And there's nothing wrong with saying, you know what, this isn't for me anymore. Um, you know, life is too short. There are too many things going on. I mean, my oldest kid is 12 now. And, you know, I want to go camping and fishing and all that stuff with him. And so, you know, having, having a work situation that allows me to go do that stuff is really important. And you know what, the the full-time gig made that harder than my current gig does. And so, you know, whatever it is, that's really valuable to you. If, if you're not in a position that enables you to do that, there is so much demand for people with expertise out there that there's no reason why you can't find your way into something else that's going to work for you. And it's, it's different from the follow your passion thing that we hear all the time. Because if you have a passion for something that nobody wants, then you're not going to make any money at it. But there are there are so many options out there anymore that you can you can put the work in, you can figure out how to get into it, and then do that. Right, Seth Godin. I, I just heard Seth Godin say on a freelancing episode of his new podcast that um, you want to. Uh, he was talking about picking a vertical, and he was like, pick a vertical that will welcome you, which was kind of like saying that people care about the expertise that you're bringing to that vertical versus like you said, just like, Oh, I'm really into, you know, whatever, learning Vulcan from the original Star Trek series and like teaching that to people like maybe, yeah, right on. Maybe not enough people are going to care about that, but 
you know, so it's a little bit, uh, it can be a little bit tricky. Mm-hmm. So, okay. How about we, how about we shift? We're, we've, it's been a little bit over an hour. How about we shift a little bit to something a little bit lighter and tactical? Cause I feel like we've been really hammering on these sort of existential questions. And Chuck Grant. <laughs> Welcome back. Um, I'd love to, to switch over to one of the questions in here about um, just tools and services and tips and tricks just for a little bit uh, to, to kind of give people some of that, some of that flavor. And I'm curious, uh, who's Curtis? Do you have a, some, I'm, I know I'm putting you on the spot. <laughs> well, that's good. So okay. I use this actually wrote a book called Analog Productivity. So this is like my whole task right here. That's <clears throat> I have uh, one text file that holds some links. I have to like on a Thursday. I want to link a couple things together, and so it holds links. That's really it. Uh, and then for my invoice, I use an app called Cushion now, um, which does a really good job of budgeting. It's a lot of cool stuff. Does does some time tracking as well. And the web interface is uh, is pretty good. So my and even tools wise, I've this I booted my computer up this week, but only because I'm recording now. Otherwise, I'm actually using my iPad Pro, which is on some stand over here. That's what I've used well, for almost the last month. Now is my only device because um, I kept finding it was just too easy to have Slack open on one of my screens. And <laughs> I would have something, whereas when I'm on the iPad, like that's all I can do. So I've got developments on there with a bunch of with Link and Moss Shell. And there's an interesting browser called Web Tools that allows you to do like all your... Um, all your development and inspection of everything. That's cool. A oh, that's good to know. So I'll be writing about that a whole bunch more uh, in the future, but those are my tools. I try to keep it pretty simple. I have a pen. I like these Sharpie pens. Writing. <laughs> I'm that's awesome. So I, they dry fast enough to drag my hand over top of my writing. And I sort of use the bullet, mostly the bullet journal system is what I would use. Um, little little tweaks here and there to think for things that fit me, but that's, that's the basics of it. Wow, that's pretty pretty straightforward. Very nice, Eric. Do you have any sort of favorite tools or tips or uh, services that you use to like every day to get your job done? Sure, um, I use Trello for pretty much everything. That's kind of how I manage my task lists, uh, to dos and such. Um, I use Toggle, which is a time tracking app. Um, I don't use it as much as I'd like to, but this is not for billing of any sort. It's to kind of keep track of how my time is distributed um, because I have the code-based assessment practice that I mentioned earlier. But also with my wife, we manage a a digital content marketing agency, or we own one, I should say. Um, So uh, I can go in a lot of different directions. It's good to track where I'm spending my time. For that content marketing agency, we use for bookkeeping something called Zoho, which I found to be like if you start with fresh books and you're just doing invoices, um, it falls down a little as you grow in certain ways and you want to do like if you have um, an S Corp or something um, and you want to do more sophisticated reporting, Zoho is kind of a good entry level accounting tool that's somewhere between fresh books and QuickBooks. Um, trying to think what else I use. Uh, For any of you that are going to get into doing payrolls, um, Gusto is a great payroll tool. Um, So that's another thing that we use. Uh, That's all that's coming to mind right off the top. Mm. Cool. How about you, Ruben? Favorite tips, tricks, tools, services? 
Well, clearly the most important tool in my toolbox is Yanks. But perhaps <laughs> <Obviously>. that's not. <laughs> Jeez. Um, the, the thing is, like, I mean, in terms of business stuff, uh, I mean, everything is around my calendar, right? My calendar basically knows six, eight months in advance where I'm going to be. And I've, uh, for the last, I don't know, two years or so, I've been using one called the BusyCal for the Mac. I've been pretty happy with it. Um, it handles things like when I travel, uh, following time zones and adjusting things correctly, um, as well as syncing with various calendars. It just like work, works pretty nicely on that front. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I use, uh, I see someone in the chat here, a few people mentioned um, uh, Zapier. So I certainly use that uh, for getting people when they buy my things, like uh, buy products, that it then goes into my email list and they get things back and I can tag them. And so I'd say like my email list is a big thing for me now. I use Drip. I know there's been a huge, huge backlash against Drip in the last month or two. And I hate to say that part of it is for good reason, um, but I'm or stuck there and or they've been good enough for me. So, <laughs> so I'm gonna stick with them for now at least. Um, and if we're selling my stuff online, I've been using Podia. But like in terms of time tracking, I, mean, I used Harvest for a while but I don't need that anymore. Uh, now, my, my employee who does needs time tracking, we just use a Google spreadsheet for that. And that's more than good enough at mm -hmm. obviously a fraction of the price. And for invoicing, I use this Israeli company that is not, not going to help anyone anywhere just because Israeli government needs to approve the invoices that you use. Um, but, uh, but yeah, no, I mean, that's like, and it's always sort of adding things and removing things over time. Uh, every, mm -hmm. I, I would suggest that everyone sort of look over their credit, I mean, it's good to look over your credit card bill anyway, but like every few months and say, do I pay for this? And so like, I just dumped Harvest two or three months ago when I realized if it's just me and my employee and he's the only one doing any billing, why am I paying so much per month when he could just put it in a spreadsheet? And voila, mm -hmm. 40 months, uh, $40 a month was added back to my budget. <laughs> there you go. Cool. Chuck, do you have uh, tools, tips, services oh, that you recommend? Yeah, cool. so um, one of the things that I got into a few months ago is I've actually been building my own system for managing the podcast stuff. Um, in fact, over the next few months, uh, the hosts of this show will probably get an invite to manage all of their content scheduling over there and things like that. I mean, Ruben covered a lot of the other stuff that I use, uh, Zapier. Um, I use Schedule Once to book guests. Um I use Google Drive for a lot of stuff. And one thing that I'm finding is that a lot of times people are looking for tools that are going to help them with some kind of productivity issue or get certain stuff done. And what I'm finding is, is that when I go and buy a tool now, it's usually to replace some manual process that I've already specified. And so I use, I actually have a template for my um, processes on Google Drive. And then Michelle, who's my executive assistant slash uh, production manager, um, she she actually uh, keeps those updated and and uses those to get a lot of that work done. And uh, yeah, so she'll fill in that template and make that work. And that way, once you have it manually done and you know what the process looks like, then if you feel like there's a tool that should be out there for it, um, and I will admit I've written scripts to do some of these things. And, you know, it's just like, don't worry about how it works. Just run this. Um, but yeah, a lot of that just winds up getting automated one way or the other. 
Um, you can also do a lot with AWS lambdas or Azure functions. <laughs> wow. If you, if you want to automate certain things that don't have like an automated something or other in Zapier or something. So you just write a little bit of Java code, you deploy it to the cloud, and then you tell Zapier to hit it when it's supposed to be hit. Oh, cool. But the the primary thing that I'm using for a lot of this stuff is uh, Zapier. And yeah, so for example, the, the podcast booking for most of the shows, um, somebody books in a, a calendar time to record an episode. Um and schedule once creates it in the Google calendar for the show. And then Zapier finds the calendar invite, invites all of the other um, hosts, emails the hosts and says, Hey, there's something set up. It creates a Google doc. You know, it does all of those things. Mm -hmm. um, it connects to SendGrid and sends an email out to people uh, to let them know that. Yeah. Anyway, so all of that stuff kind of connects and, uh, it works out nicely, but I found that if I just go buy a tool that's supposed to do what I need, then a lot of times I wind up thrashing through all the tools that do that kind of thing. And instead, if I work out the process first, it saves me a ton of work. Um, one other one that you all might be interested in, I use Pipedrive to do all the sponsorship sales tracking and stuff. And Michelle uses it when I'm doing a remote conference to keep track of who she's invited to speak and whether or not they've accepted and at what stage they are in as far as getting us the information to put them on the website and stuff. And that it's kind of like Trello. In fact, I'm kind of tempted to cancel pipe drive and just move it all to Trello. Um, Cause the thing I needed to pipe drive for mostly was the CRM. And I have another system that I'm now using to list all of my contacts. So you know, I'm still working on that process at this point, but yeah, those are some of the things that I've been using. Hmm. Yeah, Kai is also a, a big fan of PipeDrive. He's a huge PipeDrive fan. It's a it's a terrific system. Hmm. Yeah, I think a bunch of the a, a lot of the things that folks have mentioned here, uh, I also use or or some similar one. So, like I Calendly, I use a lot mm -hmm. uh, for scheduling things with other people. Uh, I use it quite a bit, in fact. Uh, I use it all over my website and emails and just everywhere. Um, I use Slack. Of course, I mean, probably everybody uses Slack, but I use it specifically for business-oriented services and products that I'm selling. So it's not just communication with clients. I'm actually selling access to paid Slack rooms. Uh, I use Crowdcast. I use um, Drip, like Reuven. Uh, I've heard a lot of backlash about it. I haven't had too much of a problem personally, so I'm still there, but, you know, jury's out. Uh, I use Ulysses to type all of my emails. I find it's really wonderful, wonderful authoring experience for somebody who likes to do uh, Markdown, which I do. And I do uh, probably the, all of these things are probably fairly well known to people, but the, maybe my secret weapon is an, an iOS app called uh, Productive. I think that's what it's called. I'm trying to look at my phone. Yeah, productive. And it's it's a to-do list that recurs every day. So I put down everything that I want to do every day uh, without fail. I put in this app and then throughout the day, it sends you alerts and stuff. It's like, oh, you didn't do this thing yet. So you can remind yourself to do them. And then the next day they all come back. And they're all very small tasks that take some, some under a minute, but the kind of things that you can't cram for the exam the night before, those sorts of things. Uh, things that you need to practice, things you need to keep up with, 
um, things that you just really need to do every day if you want to, uh, you know, move forward with whatever you're trying to achieve. So whether it's business or personal, because I have a mix of things in there. Um, but that app has been great uh, because it, it does a great job displaying your streak to you. So it shows you like, wow, I'm on a, I'm on a, a 50 day streak or I'm on a hundred day streak. I'm not going to break that just because I'm kind of tired. I'm going to get up and do that thing uh, that I forgot to do or left to the last minute or whatever. It, it, that not wanting to break that streak helps you, helps me uh, keep with these tasks that don't have a payoff until the distant future. So it, it keeps me really, uh, that's of, of all the tools, you know, that's the one that's probably my secret weapon. Uh, let's see. I'd love to get Jeremy in here to answer this one. See if I can. So Crowdcast is actually amazing, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I didn't realize that we wouldn't be able to have everybody on screen at once. That's my fault. We could have done this. Do my guess. Zoom. Yeah, Zoom would have been better. Episode 400. Yes, we'll do it for 400. Uh, that's another good one, though. Zoom is Zoom is great for video calls it would automatically focus on whoever's talking that would be nice um but yeah i really do like crowdcast for webinar type stuff it's easily my favorite let's see by the way i don't know how long we're going and i don't know i have to go uh, uh i have a meeting in 10 minutes but like you guys yep. obviously keep going without me that's fine yep no we should probably wrap up we should probably get there i don't know did anybody i didn't actually bring any picks does anybody have picks if so uh do raise your hand Kind of, I'll tell you, I've, I've got one pick, uh, cool. which is I made some uh, business cards to go to the conference in the U.S. And they have been stuck in Israeli customs for more than 10 days, 11 days now. So they will not arrive in time. So fortunately, and my first time ever using them, I used Moo for my business cards. I contacted them. They were amazing. Amazing. I mean, not only with their website and the interface and everything, but their service people walked me the whole, th whole thing and they made sure that I will get cards delivered to my hotel before the conference starts. So, um, like, color me totally impressed. And uh, I'm, I will definitely be using them again, put it that way. Yeah, plus one for Moo. Cool. I've got a, while I'm trying to get people linked up here, um, folks, panelists, you can drop pics in the chat. Um, I'll, I'll, throw out a pick, especially for podcast listeners. Uh, I just listened to the new, I think it's the newest episode of the Tim Ferriss show where he interviews Michael Pollan, who you probably know of as the food guy, sort of a, sort of a, um, I, I'm, I'm only vaguely familiar with him before I listen to this episode. And he's kind of like a farm to table type of, you know, grow your own food. That was my impression. Uh, he's sort of this this natural grow your own food type of guy. Turns out he's into all sorts of things that grow. And he just wrote a book called Changing Your Mind uh, about the sort of resurgence of science into the study of psilocybin and other mind-expanding psychedelics. And he, he's got a great personality for the topic because he's, a, he's not very skeptical, but he's reasonably skeptical. He's sort of got what I would call a journalistic level of skepticism. Uh, around this subject and the interview that uh, Ferris did with them was, it was like over two hours long and is, he was just, I don't know, it's kind of hard to describe. He's just delightful to listen to, which I think is not usually the case with a lot of authors, usually a lot better in print than they are talking, but uh, he was great and brought a lot of really interesting uh, history to the story and 
uh, he actually went out and did some, went to some places where it was legal for him to actually experiment with some of these drugs in a guided situation and talked about those experiences. It was wild. So I, I definitely would, uh, I would suggest checking out that episode, Michael Pollan on the Tim Ferriss show. Really, really good. Oh, Omnivore's Dilemma, right? That was one of his best. I mean, he's got a bunch of bestsellers. Uh, cool. Eric, have you got any picks? Um, I'm trying to rack my brain. I feel like I just fired away with my uh, tooling picks. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, did, I probably should have saved that for the very end. Yeah, don't know that I have anything off the top. Okay, cool. Let's see. Jeremy's got increaseyourconsultingfees.com. Um, familiar that, with that from previous shows. Let's see. Let me, let me who else? Pull in. I'm gonna I'm gonna grab a few more people. Let me pull in Jason to talk about this pick. If possible, Jason, you might get a connection request. There we go. Cool. Uh, what's that pick? How do you, do you know how to say that? I think it's Bonjoro, but okay. I could be wrong. But <laughs> um, yeah, it was it was a tool that I had actually experienced from the other end. Um, where I got a personalized uh, video uh, without a with a call to action button on it from I forget who now, but <clears throat> I decided that I was going to try to use it and see if it was something because I feel like sometimes in this automated world that we live in that we lose personal high touch kind of things. And mm -hmm. for me, I was like, oh, I want to see if I use that tool for a, you know basically a webinar I was running. So. Um, everybody that signed up for that webinar, I basically sent them a personalized video back and it was, you know, 15, 20 seconds. It wasn't really long, but, you know, just to kind of say, thanks for signing up. And, uh, you know, if you have any questions, hit that button below and, uh, you know, ask away kind of thing. And, uh, the, the feedback was like exceptional people were replying back and, you know, just saying like, oh, that's so cool. And, you know, how, how did you do this? How do you scale this? Like all asking all these other questions, but it was just a thing that I just kind of wanted to do to surprise and delight and, you know, go above and beyond. And I'm going to probably use that tool for other things that I haven't planned, but, um, you know, it was a, a really cool, cool little neat tool. Excellent. That's wild. All right. Sweet. I think uh, I, I probably, there's so much going on here. I'm sure I missed something. I apologize for that. But uh, let me see here. I guess we should wrap. Is there anything I'm forgetting? Let me pull, let me pull the granddaddies on here, Ruben and Chuck, so we can uh, have sort of an official wrap up. There we go. So before I screen myself down, I'm going to say, Chuck, thanks very much for creating this in the first place. And for my speaking for myself, thanks for having me on. It's been a, a super fun journey, and I'm looking forward to uh, staying on it. Yeah, absolutely. It, it was a uh, it was something we just kind of created together, Evan and Eric and Jeff and I. And yeah, it was so that I could figure out what I was doing freelancing. And who knew that we'd be doing it 300 episodes later? Amazing, awesome, amazing. Hey, Ruben, you want to take us out? Thanks, everyone. 300 episodes so far, many more to go. Thanks, Chuck. Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks, everyone else. All the uh, panelists, guests, listeners, participants, keep the questions coming, keep listening, and we'll see you for many weeks to come on The Freelancer Show. Bye-bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. 
Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.